to Horrendous, a podcast brought to you by two best friends. I'm Elizabeth. Joining me is my heterosexual life mate, Callie. Hello. And this is going to be a podcast of history, mystery, and murder, and a little bit of creep, too. We decided to start this podcast because we like weird shit. And so if you like that kind of stuff, too, then this is the podcast for you. Yep. We've been friends for 27 years. Has it been that long? It really has. We're together for, yeah, you're my my longest relationship. That is true. Same for me. Like longer than my husband. Yep. I've, yeah, Matt and I've been together for 16 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Married for 12. So yeah, you, you haven't beat by a few years. Quite a few. Quite a few, yeah, by a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so this podcast, we just want to talk about things that we find interesting. We're into ghosts, murder, weird history. So if any of that sounds at all fun or anything like you would remotely want to listen to, then we're going to be your girls. We're going to cover a wide range of stuff, and we want to take a different approach Approach to some of these stories some of them you've probably heard before and they've been hammered to death but we want to do a different spin on those and we want to cover stuff that's not really talked about all that much mm-hmm. so yeah I mean I guess that sums us up yeah yeah <laughs> I don't think there's anything else to add to that um besides again we're just starting this out this will be my first time editing anything ever so bear with us we are learning but we have lots of experience talking especially me I don't (laughs) shut up so yeah um we might run a little long sometimes yes probably that's yes it will be it will be perfect (laughs) all right so I'm very sweaty right now (laughs) that is okay it is and hot. you can leave that in. I don't care. I'm a sweater. I guess <laughs> that's what happens. You become a certain age and you have to start using clinical strength deodorant. Oh, I just use natural deodorant. See, I want to. I want to use because Brady uses native. Okay. And I want to use it so very badly because it smells amazing. Mm-hmm. But I sweat way too damn much for that if you're listening be a sponsor (laughs) so we so I can get discounted uh deodorant for my daughter yes um I use Smith's shameless request number one (laughs) I use Smith's um sensitive skin and it's really lovely lots of good sniffs smells (laughs) is what I meant but yeah, it's pretty the great. Aroma, it's a nice aroma. Mm-hmm. Got a nice bouquet. Yes, it's beautiful <laughs> for underneath my armpits. And so. everybody who would possibly be listening is probably tuning out by now. <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah. So, Callie, what's up? What's new? What's going on on the other side of the country? Is California still burning? Yes, California is still burning. Um, not near me, so that is good. Uh, it has been hot and it's October and I want to be spooky and it is too hot to be spooky. Mm, that's the one perk of living in the Midwest. It's the only thing I actually will tolerate about the Midwest because I actually get to enjoy fall. And I have a spooky cemetery in my front yard right now. I'm very proud of it. I'll have to post it on our Instagram page. Follow us on Instagram at horrendous podcast. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it looked really good from the pictures I seen. Yeah, I really decided to be super extra with Halloween this year. I've always wanted to, you know, I love Halloween. Mm-hmm. And I just really kind of went nuts with it this year. And the kids loved it. The kids got super involved with it. Poor Matt, like he had to be my project guy and do all the, you know, hard work while I just told them where to put stuff. So nice. he loved it. I'm, I'm sure you know that. Right. Um, Yeah. Oh, also what's new with me, I am drinking a beverage called Chimea River by Newtopia Cider in San Diego, and it's delicious. 
I I know I told you this earlier, but that name just really does everything for me because I love a good pun. And that's by far probably the one of the best like fuck you revenge music videos ever. The Justin Timberlake Cry Me a River video. It's pretty solid. Yeah. With the introductions done, we are going to start the first episode, which is the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Mm, yes. Charles Lindbergh. Yes. Delightful human by all accounts. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because Callie and I both, we grew up Callie, well, you lived in St. Louis. I did. Well, off and on. Yeah. But Callie and I grew up an hour and a half south of St. Louis. And Lindbergh is a huge deal in St. Louis. If you go to St. Louis, there's Lindbergh Boulevard. There's the Lindbergh School District, which is hysterical because he never lived in St. Louis. He's not even from St. Louis. (laughs) Nope. He sure is not. He was born in Minnesota, right? Exactly. And but because he flew no, the Michigan St. Louis. Yeah, I was gonna say it's one of the M's. Yeah. I thought it was Michigan, but I wasn't gonna it it is Michigan. Yeah. So But he was raised on a farm yes. in Minnesota. No, his only connection to St. Louis is that he flew like the postal plane. Mm-hmm. So that's the only way he would be really connected by to St. Louis other than the spirit of St. Louis his plane. He didn't even fly. He didn't even take off from St. Louis. He took <laughs> off from New York. So that is really true. St. Louis has all this Lundberg, you know, love for mm-hmm. really no reason at all. But, you know, that is what it is. St. Louis is a very perplexing town. His donors who sponsored him were from St. Louis. His largest donors were. Um, okay. So, makes sense, I guess. Yeah. But shouldn't we be naming streets after the donors? You would think, but I mean, again, St. Louis does some weird shit. We make some weird choices. That's true. You know, but yeah, Lindbergh, um, <laughs> he was like the equivalent of during his time. What would you say, like, compare him to like a celebrity today? A celebrity? I would go with. Yeah, because, like, he was a big deal. Like, people were obsessed with him. He was a very public person. So I'm just trying, like, to put it in perspective, okay, he would be, like, he would be kind of, like, he had the public attention, the fame, and the love of the public. Like, you know, kind of what you would see in, like, a a baseball player or, you know, somebody plays in the NFL or a movie star. Like, he was, like, a big deal. He was considered America's sweetheart. Even though mm-hmm. he, as we will discuss, was just a garbage human. And, no. <laughs> um, yeah, like, so that, I mean, like, so when this happened, when the Lindbergh kidnapping happened, it kind of floored everybody because everyone's, you know, normal people are looking at it like, oh, my God, this can happen to somebody like Charles Lindbergh. Like, who else could this happen to? And so everybody kind of felt that tragedy, you know, almost like to compare it like almost like when Princess Diana died, like yeah. that's how deeply people felt this. Like when you know, because again, it's a little baby being abducted from their family. So yeah, I mean that's you know the public wanted to know everything about it because they felt like they knew Lindbergh because right. he was always in the papers. He was Mer- you know America's favorite guy. His wife was a pilot. They were America's most beautiful couple. They were you know it was just it was a big deal for people. Yeah, it's. Kind of reminds me of like JFK and Jackie Kennedy. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, if you had to compare it to something, that's kind of the level of fame that they had. They were Kennedy level fame. And, mm-hmm. you know, she came from a wealthy family. And so this was a, a huge deal. Yeah, it definitely was. Again, because it felt like everybody knew the family, like they were part of their family just because of how much in the spotlight they were. All right. So tell us, so Callie, go ahead and why don't you tell me some of the facts of the case? Where do we begin? What happened? I guess let's start at the beginning. (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess that's the the best place to start. So we're discussing the kidnapping. Yeah. So tell me about the, do you want to start with, 
the day of the kidnapping? Yes, let's start with that. So Charles Jr., um, he was 20 months old at the time of the kidnapping. Okay, first of all, can we just say he was a year and a half? <laughs> 20 are, months are old. Those, my baby is 85 months old. Okay, no, he was, all right, you're, I'm sorry, 20, 20 months old. Mm-hmm. It's very integral to the story. Okay, all right, my bad. Go ahead, proceed, please. Um, and he was kidnapped around 9 p.m., March 1st, 1932. From his home. This is all really choppy. I'm very sorry. Because <laughs> I am reading from a sheet of paper, which I That's try okay. not to do. So, so from what we know, though, I'm just going to interject here. Yes. So from what we know, they were not even meant to be at their Highfield no. state. No. Charles Jr., he was homesick while his parents were where ever they were staying because the home wasn't complete yet that they were building. So Charlie stayed home. I call them Charlie. I don't know if anybody calls him Charlie, but that's why I'm calling them. And a lot of the pot, like, and just to jump in real quick, we will be trying to give credit to our sources, but a lot of the podcasts I listen to, like Most Notorious does a really good episode of it. That's on Spotify. And then uh, Last Podcast on the Left did a really good episode about it. I did a couple episodes about it. And by all accounts, they called the baby, everybody called him Baby Charlie. Okay, that's so fair. You're, so you calling him Charlie is totally appropriate. Okay, carry on. Sorry. He was at home with the nurse, Betty Gow. Betty Gao didn't realize he was missing until around 10 p.m. That's when she made, I guess, a call to the parents. They found a note for ransom on the windowsill. The ransom note was asking for $50,000. And Betty Gao, she becomes important to the case, though. Mm Mm-hmm. She and Violet Sharp both become very important. Violet Sharp was, I think, a maid of the Lindberghs, or she was a maid to the in-laws, Charles Lindbergh's in-laws. And both of those people become very important. 50000 in 1914 would be close to $1.3 million today. Okay, that's a lot of money. Yes. Yes, it is. But Lindbergh would have had it, though. Like, he, I mean... He won a prize for his trip for overseas the transatlantic, yeah mm-hmm. for the transatlantic fight and then he was also doing a lot of public speaking engagements so he definitely would have had the money and people would have known he would have had the money and i mean he was you know they were spending all this money you know getting this new house built and so people knew that he'd be able to afford a ransom right which is probably the reason why they would look to the Lindberghs to kidnap a baby so The Hopewell police were notified after the ransom note was found. And then they sent the report to New Jersey State Police. And the New Jersey State Police took charge. Uh, During the search of the kidnapping scene, they found traces of mud on the floor of the nursery. But they could not measure the footprints underneath the window. They found two sections of ladders that had been used to reach the window. Uh, One of the two sections was split or broken, were joined together, indicating the latter had broken during the ascent or descent. They found no bloodstains or fingerprints in or about the nursery. I would hope that the latter broke on the way down. Just what would they have done? Use the front door? If not? Right. You you would. So, and. I mean, there would have been the most, I mean, realistic way for them to get out. I mean, well, who's going to kidnap a child and then go through the front door? Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because that means that if they were going to go through the front door, they would have to know the layout of the house. So it would have been unrealistic. Yes. So after that, the household and estate employees were questioned and investigated. Lindbergh's asked friends to communicate with kidnappers. They made widespread appeals to kidnappers to start negotiation, and numerous clues were advanced and exhausted. So anytime they got like a clue or anything, they just couldn't follow it, and it led nowhere. All right, so ransom notes. There was a total of 13 ransom notes that they had received. 
I feel like that. I mean, so I feel like for a kidnapping and mind you, I've never been involved in one, so I can't Mm -hmm. really speak to this. Right. But it seems like a lot. Mm hmm. It, it seems does. a little excessive. I mean, he was ultimately, I think, gone for, what, two months, 10 weeks, something like that. I think it was like two and a half months. Yeah, I would say it was about 10 weeks before they ultimately, you know, recovered baby Charlie. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like 13 ransom notes is a bit excessive, especially if you, in the first ransom note, you're telling them like, okay, this is what we want. Mm-hmm. And this is what you need to do to get your kid back, so. Right. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. So, no, that's fine. It is completely excessive. But, like, some of the ransom notes, like, they were literally just, hey, follow these directions and you'll find another ransom note. So, it's a little... So, it was like a scavenger hunt. Yeah, basically. It was bizarre. Um, So, the second note was received by the Lindberghs on March 6th. So five days later, it was postmarked from Brooklyn, New York on March 4th, and they increased the ransom to $70,000. Following the second ransom note, the police held a conference by the governor at Trinan, New Jersey. Uh, It was attended by prosecuting officials, police authorities, government representatives. They discussed various theories and policies of procedures Private investigators were also employed by the Lindbergh's attorney, who was Colonel Henry Breckenridge. The third note was received by Lindbergh's attorney on March 8th. It informed that an intermediary appointed by the Lindbergh's would not be accepted and requesting a note in the newspaper. The same day, Dr. John Condon from Bronx, New York, who's a retired school principal, published and the Bronx Home News, an offer to act as the go-between, as well as pay an additional $1,000 ransom, which for that, yeah, I don't understand why he would offer more money. Well, not only that, Condon did not know the Lindberghs at all, like had never even met them. Right. But in this impassioned letter that he wrote, and you know had published you know mm-hmm. he goes into how he feels like he knows Lindbergh the Lindberghs and he would be honored to be the mediary you know for them and help get their baby back but it's just very weird and we'll go into this mm-hmm. but just very quickly like this is why a lot of people suspect him as being part of the plot but anyway go ahead right. so then a fourth note was received by Condon on March 9th It indicated he was an acceptable go-between, and he was approved by Lindbergh. March 10th, so Condon received $70,000 cash as ransom and started negotiations for payment through newspaper columns using the codename JAFSI, which I found no information on why he would use that codename. That is bizarre. So... Unless it was something like that meant, again, it goes back to if he was involved, like that had to be something. Right. That would make sense. Yeah. But anyway. Fifth note was received by Condon on March 12th at 8.30 p.m. After receiving an anonymous phone call, it was delivered by a taxi driver, Joseph Perrone. Uh, The message stated another note. See, this is what I was talking about. The message stated another note would be found beneath the stone at a vacant stand a hundred feet from an outlying subway station. So immediately so it's a scavenger hunt kidnapping, basically. Right. So after that, the sixth note was found by Condon at the location indicated. Following instructions within the note, Condon met unidentified man called John at Woodlawn Cemetery. So that would be Cemetery John that is talked about with this case. Mm-hmm. They discussed the ransom payment. Cemetery John will become come to be very notorious too. Right. They discussed the ransom payment. John agreed to give a token of the child's identity. Condon was accompanied by a bodyguard while talking to John. 
Condon continued advertisements urging further contact for the next few days. The seventh note was received by Condon March 16th. He also received a baby sleeping suit. It was delivered to the Limbergs and was later identified as the one that Charlie was wearing. Mm. Condon continued advertisements after that, like just trying to get them to talk more. And they, he didn't receive the eighth note until March 21st. And in that note, it was insisting on compliance and that the kidnapping had been planned for a year. Which is still like, I find that very interesting. Right. So that would mean that they had been planning it since Charlie was eight months old. And on top of that, again, nobody knew where the Highfield estate was in Hopewell. And Mm -hmm. um, like it was not public, it was not public knowledge. So that's the other interesting part of it. And we'll get into that too when we talk about theories behind it. But, you know, they were living with his wife's family. So for them to know where the child would be at, considering it was a last minute decision to stay there and it was not public knowledge, Mm -hmm. makes it seem like it was an inside job. But we'll get to that. Um, But it's just very interesting. Mm -hmm. And then as a side note that I have here, um, the 29th of March, Betty Gao found infants thumb guard that he was wearing when he was kidnapped Mm -hmm. near the interest entrance of the state. I don't have any more to add to that side note. I just thought it was really important that that was found. I mean, it is interesting because it, I mean, it's it's something that would belong to the child. And if she knew it belonged to them and it was easy, easily identifiable as being Charlie's then yeah, that's important. And it is weird that she found. So how long after the kidnapping was March 29th? It was March 29th that that was found and he was kidnapped on March 1st. So 28 oh, so days that's later. Weird because yeah. I mean it I mean rain, all the police coming in and out. Mhm. Huh. That's this bizarre. Yes. So then uh the ninth note was received by Condon on March 30th, it threatened to increase the demand to $100,000 and refusing a code for use in the newspaper columns. Tenth ransom note was received by Condon April 1st, instructed him to have the money ready the following night. Condon replied by an ad in the press. An 11th note was delivered to Condon April 2nd. It was delivered by an unknown taxi driver who said he received it from an unknown man. The 12th note was found by Condon under a stone in front of a greenhouse as instructed by the 11th note. So again, he's doing a scavenger hunt. Following the instructions on the 12th note, Condon met whom he believed to be John to reduce the ransom to $50,000. So their original amount. The amount was handed to the stranger in exchange for a receipt and a 13th note. The 13th note was handed directly to Condon, and it contained instructions that the kidnapped child could be found on a boat named Nellie near Martha's Vineyard. Condon was positive that he could identify John if he ever saw him again. So following all the ransom notes, they did a search of Martha's Vineyard the following day after the 13th note was found. They found nothing. They also did the search later. They repeated it. May 12th, two months and 11 days after the kidnapping, the body of Charlie was found by accident. He was partially buried and badly decomposing, and he was found only four and a half miles from the Lindbergh's home, 45 feet from the highway near Mount Rose. Okay, I'm going to stop you really quick. So I just did a real quick side Google. Mm Mm-hmm. From Hopewell, New Jersey, where the Lindberghs lived, to Martha's mm-hmm. Vineyard, it is six hours and 20 minutes. Yeah. I mean, the kidnappers, theoretically, if they really did abscond with this child in the night and the mm-hmm. Lindberghs contacted the police, like, almost immediately, right. they would have had to have been hauling ass. Right. And cars back then didn't go that fast. 
Exactly. So I find that to be very bizarre. I'm sorry. Like I had to know how far apart they are. That's very important to note. Yeah, it is pretty far. So as we found out, the body did not go that far away. No. It was found right near the home, four and a half miles. It was discovered by William Allen. They pulled over so he could use the bathroom to go pee. And that's when he discovered the body. Yeah, he was like a... He was an assistant on a truck driven by Orville Wilson. Okay. The head was crushed and there was a hole in the skull. Body members missing. The body was identified on March 13th in Trenton. The coroner's examination showed that the baby had been dead for two months. Yeah, so he suffered almost an immediate death. Yeah. And there are theories that he was dropped or, you know, by accident, like the intent was not to kill him. Or he was killed that very night because they just wanted to take the ransom and run. They didn't really care either way. Right. It was found (sighs) that the death was caused by a blow to the head. Yeah, and that's where the dropping... Yeah, if the ladder broke on the way down Hmm. and he fell, that would make sense. And they said, like, he just, uh, I hate talking, like, it makes me nauseous talking Mm -hmm. about a little baby. Right. But by all accounts, his body had been disrupted Mm -hmm. by animals and by the elements. Yep. And he was partially buried too, correct? Yes. Oh, okay. Like, theoretically, with how it was, like, how they found him, um, between the time that he was discovered missing and the time the police officers were called, like, if he was only partially buried. Yeah, it was a quick disposal. hmm But it also makes you wonder, too... Because if they were thoroughly searching the property and the grounds around it, and if he was really that close to the house, they would have found the body before 10 weeks later. But I mean, right? it's easy to say, you know, we don't know what all went into the, well, and the investigation had a lot of road bumps too. Yes, it did. I know there was like a lot of stuff that wasn't said that some things were yeah. kept secret that people were not cooperating, though. But that is what I have on the kidnapping. It is interesting, too. So I, like, knew about this story. hmm And I didn't realize, like, I thought they just never found the baby. Like, for some reason, I don't know why I felt thought that, but I thought that they never found the baby. And then listening to podcasts the past couple years... It, kind of, it blew my mind that they, you know, they did. I just thought they never recovered him. Like he was just still missing. So mm-hmm. to know that, yeah, 20, you know, almost two year old child, it was, it was very sad. It was. And the investigation, like you, like we mentioned, it had a lot of hiccups. <sighs> Lindbergh was very controlling of the information that was given to police. He wanted to be involved in every step. And because of this, people think he's trying to cover something up, and we'll get to that. He also refused help from the FBI. Like J. Edgar Hoover, who was a notorious asshole and didn't give a shit about anybody, offered the help of the FBI. And Lindbergh said, no, I don't want your help. He also prevented the police from interviewing his wife and the staff the night of the kidnapping, which you would think he'd want everybody interviewed. Right. And some would argue, well, he didn't want his wife interviewed because she was just so distraught. You know, he didn't want to bring any kind of more duress upon her. But he also refused the help of bloodhounds. Yeah. And they were barred. And the police are also prevented from listening to or even recording any phone conversations with the potential kidnappers. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, there was multiple ransom notes. Like, it was just basically like a breadcrumb of ransom notes and 13 ransom notes for a kidnapping that seems so like just really over the top and unnecessary yes and 
he, and again, he wasn't even supposed to be at the Highfield estate. So location of the estate, like I said earlier, wasn't even known to the public. And the Lindberghs weren't even typically at Highfield on Tuesdays. The choice to stay there was a last minute decision. And they were still, because they were still in the process of renovating and building the estate. And they were staying with Ann Lindbergh's family at the Lin, at Ann Lindbergh's family home in Englewood, New Jersey during the week. So they were only at Highfield limited days of the week. This was the first Tuesday they ever stayed at Highfield. So this also kind of points to it being somebody in the inner circle. And the nursery was located on the second floor, which consisted of seven bedrooms and no other ladder marks were found for the other rooms. So that means that they knew exactly what room they were going to. Right. And only the nursery had ladder marks, um, which again, suggests an inside job. But ultimately... They would come to get a suspect and he would be convicted and he would be put to death for the crime. And this was Bruno Hoffman. And he is widely accepted by most historians to be the perpetrator. And he, like I said, was convicted for the kidnapping and murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. But there's a lot of conspiracy theories and whether he truly committed this crime is something that is still debated to this day. There's books written about it. There's some people who are very steadfast and that he is their guy. Like he's the one who did it, but then there's other people who tend to lean towards it was possibly an inside job. Hopsman was a German immigrant. He had a record of criminal activity in Germany and he kind of stowed, he stowed away on a boat to get here. How Hoffman got caught, the ransom that was demanded was $70,000. $40,000 of this was paid in gold certificates. Mm -hmm. And in 1933, FDR ordered all gold certificates be turned into the banks and no longer used, which made them very rare. And this would lead to Hoffman getting arrested and associated with the case because in 1934, after a bank in New York received a $10 gold note from a gas station, the gas, they traced it back to this gas station, the police go to the gas station and the attendant identified the license plate of the customer who paid with the gold note. And they were able to trace this license plate to Bruno Hoffman because the vehicle that was identified was registered in his name. Also, his appearance was consistent with that of Cemetery John, who was the ransom um, money contact for Dr. Condon. Yes. He was also identified by taxi driver Joseph Perrone as the man who gave him the fifth of the 13 total ransom notes. Mm -hmm. Also, Hoffman was a carpenter by trade, and shortly after the kidnapping, he quit his job and began trading stocks. Upon his arrest, he was charged with extortion and murder. So the evidence that they were able to get to convict him and put, you know, pin him as the culprit was when they went to Hoffman's house to search his house, they found this like shoebox basically filled with money. And his wife said she had never seen it there before. But Hobsman maintained that a friend of his who coincidentally had left the country and moved back to Europe um, and who ended up dying in poverty had left this money with him. So if you, this alien person, you know, they're going to leave all this money to their buddy and just go die in poverty in Europe. Uh, it sounds really weird. And his wife never noticed this money because his friend had been gone for a year. So they found that they found, they found a phone number written in pencil that was linked to Condon. Mm -hmm. I believe Condon was able to, sorry, I just blanked. You're <laughs> I got fine. lost in my notes for a second. <laughs> So yeah, so they oh about and then when they further searched his house and went into the attic, which I don't know what a prompt would have prompted them to go into the attic, they found pieces of wood missing, and the wood was consistent with the ladder because they believed that the ladder had been homemade. So this even kind of made Hobman look even worse because he was a carpenter by trade. He had missing planks in his attic. The wood flooring missing from his attic was consistent with that of the ladder. But he maintained he was innocent. 
Yeah. He said he had none to his case. It was all just coincidence. He, he was not their guy. The prosecution, this evidence, even though it was all circumstantial, they called Lindbergh to the stand as an ear witness, which <laughs> not very reliable. And, no. and on top of that, Lindbergh's going to just, he wants it to be over mm-hmm. with too. So of course he's going to say, this is our guy. He, and the reason they called him is because he could tie Hauptman to being cemetery John because of, because of his voice. But Lindbergh was several hundred feet away in the car during this exchange of the ransom money. And even though John Condon identified him as being Cemetery John, it's also important to note that when Hauptman was first arrested, Condon could not identify him positively as being Cemetery John. No, he couldn't. And so he was convicted in 1935, and he was given a a death sentence. Mm -hmm. Well, didn't they also link his handwriting to the ransom notes as well? Yes. And then also, too, I was correct. The police did mark the gold notes. So that's also how they were able to positively identify the fact that these were the actual gold notes from the ransom. Um, I knew I had put that in my notes, but I just didn't put them in the, in the right spot. He, so yeah, so he was convicted of the kidnapping and murder in 1935 in an in extortion, but he was offered multiple times a deal by the prosecution to commute his sentence to just life in prison if he offered up his accomplices because they didn't believe that he was intelligent enough or could have even pulled this off by himself. But he refused. He would not give anybody up. He maintained his innocence, said, I did not do this. And he still, until his death sentence was carried out, until he died, said that he was innocent. He didn't commit the crime. And, uh, and further to that, his wife would spend the rest of her life until her death in 1994 when she was 90 defending her husband and saying he was innocent. He did not do this. Mm-hmm. There are theories that suggest that the evidence was found at Hotman's home was planted by police just because they wanted to get the case closed. Lindbergh, you know, he's America's golden boy. Um, they just wanted to pin the crime on somebody and they wanted to make the public happy because this was a big deal to the public. The public was following this case very closely. They wanted to make the Lindberghs happy because Lindberghs were a big deal. Mm-hmm. So there are theories that, you know, they, he was just a patsy, as Lee Harvey Oswald called himself. He was just an easy target because he was a German immigrant. Mm-hmm. It was He was easy because he could have very well got paid in a gold note, you know, gold notes from somebody. Right. And just, and just unfortunately, wrong place, wrong time. And... And that's how he got connected. John Douglas of uh, Mind Hunter fame, which I still need to watch for that show because I yeah. love Jonathan Graff <laughs> um, and I love serial killer stuff. There was a PBS Nova special and he narrates it and he goes and he doesn't, you know, goes over the facts of the case. He believes that Hopman was guilty, but he did not act alone. So that goes back to the police. Again, they felt like he didn't act alone. They wanted him to give up his accomplices. Mm-hmm. But again, he refused to. So John Douglas, Mr. Mindhunter himself, thinks he didn't act alone. He believes this for several reasons. So one of those reasons is because Hopman was only in possession of one third of the ransom money. Arguments can be made that he spent the other two thirds in the course of the year, but he had no extravagant possessions or proof that in the two years after the crime, before his arrest, that he spent the money. He lived a very modest life and he would have had to spend the equivalent of a million dollars in two years. Douglas explains that he says typically in a case like this, there's more than one perpetrator need to execute this sort of crime. Again, that could go back into the police knew that there was multiple kidnappers. Right. But he wouldn't give them up. So there's other reasons that people think that there was multiple culprits too. So the actual ransom note itself that was left at the scene was consistent with somebody who was not highly educated, which goes back to Hopsman. Mm -hmm. He was not highly educated. He was a German immigrant. He was a carpenter. Um, The note was filled with misspellings throughout as well as multiple European style punctuation uses, which again, Hopsman, German immigrant. The podcast Twisted postulates 
that there were two or more perpetrators involved in the plot because the ransom note refers to we multiple times. Additionally, those involved were low to middle class and this was their first kidnapping attempt or even, you know, their first, like, first real major crime because Hotman, he had a criminal record, but they were petty crimes. Right. It wasn't anything like kidnapping. So obviously these were not people who were accustomed to committing something on this level. Right. And so they were clearly not sophisticated criminals. The second ransom note received a few days later was written in the same handwriting using the pronoun we. So again, it suggests more than one person. And the Lindberghs had recently just moved into their estate, which I had already, which I already discussed. And because of the location, in fact, it wasn't public. This supports the theory that Hauptman was innocent. Mm-hmm. He unfortunately went to his death being known as the baby Lindbergh killer and brought shame to his wife. And she fought for the rest of her life to proclaim that he was not an evil person, that he didn't do this. Mm -hmm. So didn't he also exhaust all of his appeals as well? Like he was appealing it until the day of his execution. I believe everything I read that, yeah, he was still appealing it and trying to forego the death sentence. But you would think even with prosecution putting on the tape on the table, here's an opportunity. You don't have to face the death penalty. Tell us who you, who were your partners, who helped you do this. And you can just spend the rest of your life in jail. You don't have to die. And he refused to give anybody up. So that, I mean, you would think it's somebody who's exhausting appeals and is trying to fight for every chance to not be put to death. They would give up accomplices mm-hmm. if they had it. So that's just one of the reasons why people have have started these conspiracy theories. So a lot of people do think it was a side job. Mm-hmm. And again, it goes back to the fact that nobody knew where the Highfield estate was. Mm-hmm. They had been staying at the Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh's in-laws home in Inglewood. He had a cold and Anne didn't want him to travel. So they made the decision, the last minute decision to stay at Highfield that night. Mm-hmm. No one would have known that they were going to be there that evening. So if, so if the plan was to kidnap him from the Inglewood estate, they would have had to make those changes very last minute. Mm-hmm. So... The kidnappers would have had to like make a very last minute call. They would have had to switch up their plan. And I don't think that the estates were close enough that they would have been able to easily do this. So this makes people really think that this was an inside job. A lot of people think, well, we'll we'll just, we'll discuss Lindbergh and why people think he's involved in a minute. So Violet Sharp, who is one of the Lindbergh family staff. Now, a lot of people get her and Betty Gao confused. Um, Betty Gao was the nanny for baby Mm -hmm. Charlie. Violet Sharp, she, I think, again, I believe she was a maid for the, for Ann Lindbergh's family. Suspicion fell on her very early. She gave conflicting alibis for the night of the kidnapping and was actually really suspicious, or as my 11-year-old says, very sus. (laughs) My 13-year-old too. Right? That's what all the cool kids are saying. And I should not say that because I sound just like such a mom. Um, she was questioned twice and when she was supposed to participate in a third interview prior to the interview, she ran to her room and drank silver polish mm-hmm. contained potassium cyanide resulting in her immediate death. However, despite that really just suspect behavior, because I mean, who's going to kill themselves to avoid questioning police? Most people just disappear dye their hair, cut it, change their look. She decided to just be a little bit extra. Um, so, but she was ultimately ruled out because they were fine. Police were finally able to verify her alibi. Now, why she 
decided to end her life by suicide. People believe that she just was very fearful of losing her job and she just couldn't handle the pressure because again, the Lindberghs were a very big deal. And he was known as Lucky Lindy. That was his really just stupid nickname. But yeah, they were a big deal. And so she was, you know, associated with even maybe being involved on some level, any level then she would be not be able to have any light. And also too, it, even despite that, even if she wasn't associated or even thought to be associated with it, she felt like she had let the Lundbergs down. Right. So there's also yeah, with Betty Gow, see, this is where people, I think Violet Sharp and Betty Gow warp into one mm-hmm. because there's a theory that it, and I've seen two, I've seen different sources say this was Betty Gow. I've seen different sources say it was Violet Sharp. Somebody is, it's theorized that somebody, Violet Sharp or Betty Gow, inadvertently gave out the information of the Lindberghs staying at Highfield unknowingly. So, for instance, someone would have called to inquire if they were in the home and she informed the caller that they were in fact at the Highfield estate and not, you know, the estate in Hope in um, Inglewood. So yeah, Highfield wasn't Hopewell. Uh, yeah. So she, and I, I think this is actually meant to be about Violet Sharp because she did work for Lindbergh's in-laws. So she, you know, answered the phone and said, no, they're actually staying at Highfield tonight, not here. And so that would have given the kidnappers the information. Right. And so people think that, okay, going back to it being an outside job, that's how they found out. And that's how they were able to change their plans so quickly. Mm-hmm. Another theory is John Condon, because he volunteered himself as a go-between. He never met Charles or Ian Lindbergh. And he really went, once Lindbergh brought him in to be the go-between. He really inserted himself in the investigation. He was very outspoken and would discuss his role in the case with anyone who would listen. And he even went on to appear in a vaudeville act portraying the case. But there's really nothing definitive that can tie him to the kidnapping. It's just basically his behavior. But just because he was an attention whore, you can't really say that he was a kidnapper he just wanted to be involved it's a stick thing they just need to be involved and somehow they need some level of notoriety right so one another theory and this one this one i found very very interesting it connects hopsman to the case so it still implicates hopman as being involved but it reveals that he did not do it by himself. So if you buy into this theory, and I think it's, it could be very plausible, this may be a reason why he wouldn't give up his accomplices. So John Knoll was a German immigrant who lived in the South Bronx. He was friends with Hopsman and is believed to be one of the accomplices in the kidnapping and murder. He is also believed to be Cemetery John. There's a gentleman by the name of Gene Zorn who grew up next door to John Knoll. And Knoll mentored him. He taught him about collecting stamps. He was just basically a big brother figure to Gene Zorn. And Zorn connected the dots after he went to a barber shop and he, there was an article like Time Life or something, you know, magazine, that basically something you flip through while you're waiting. He read an article about the kidnapping and then something made like something in that article made in his brain just click for a minute and he remembered something from his childhood he remembered going to a like a county fair or carnival or something with john knoll as a child and at this carnival or you know fair whatever it was he uh remembered that he and Noel met up with friends of Noel's and one of them he referred to as Bruno. However, people argue that this probably was not Bruno Hopsman because he went by Richard, like in okay. public. His name, his born and given name was Richard Bruno Hopsman. But if they were close enough friends, 
maybe they did go by Bruno. So that was a little bit coincidental. Mm -hmm. Um, After Gene Zorn passed away, his son, Bob, took over the quest to prove John Knoll's connection to the case. Photos of Knoll were examined and he matches the description of Cemetery John to a T, even with the large abnormality on his thumb, which John Condon described to police after he met Cemetery John to drop off the ransom. Mm -hmm. Additionally, the police sketch of Cemetery John also matched photos of Knoll. Furthermore, which this is very interesting, and somebody with a of meager means living in the South Bronx, um, John Knoll and his wife took a very expensive trip to Europe. Yep. Both of them secured first-class tickets when they were not even known to have that kind of money. Again, very suspicious. And the Knolls did not return to the United States from the trip until the very day after Houtman was convicted. Yeah, that's weird. So it's very weird. So Bob Zorn kind of has made it his life's mission to prove his father's theory to be true. And in the Nova documentary I mentioned earlier, John Douglas interviews Bob Zorn and discusses this theory with him. So that's another theory that's gained a lot of popularity. It, It seems like it could be very likely but again, it's one of those things we don't really know unless we can something comes to light that can definitively tie him to the uh, Hopsman and to the case itself. With that said, we're going to go to probably one of the most popular theories about our buddy Lucky Lindy. Oh, no. But he's so yeah. lucky. Like... He's so lucky. He's just America's sweetheart, just the greatest guy, just wonderful. Why would he do that? I'm glad you asked. Thank you. So there's a lot of theories, again, that this was an inside job. And a lot of these theories circulate around Charles Lindbergh himself. So why would Lindbergh want to do any kind of harm or stage kidnapping or anything for his firstborn and only child at that time. Now, he and Anne would go on to have more children, but baby Charlie was their firstborn. So again, because of Lindbergh's behavior and his involvement with the police, that leads a lot of people to think that he had some sort of hand or some sort of knowledge in what was going on. So, like I said, he refused help from the FBI. The police were barred from listening to recording phone conversations. Another reason people think this is an inside job and that Lindbergh was involved was because the child was abducted while the rest of the family was awake. And the family dogs didn't even bark during the time frame in which the abduction was believed to have occurred. So, you have to think that, again, as I kind of hammered home, the state was not public knowledge. They were in the process of renovating, so they weren't even staying there on a permanent basis. The ladder marks were only found at the nursery window, so they had to know exactly what w- window to go to. And there were seven total bedrooms on the floor of the nursery. And the fact that you're going to have strangers in the home, you would have thought that the dogs would have heard something and would have freaked out. My dog freaks out if a bird flies past our window. Just dogs pick up that kind of stuff. So the fact that the dogs didn't react makes people think that it had to be somebody that the Lindberghs knew, if not Lindbergh himself. So Charles Lindbergh, America's favorite guy at that time. All right. Was actually a huge dick. Was he? He was super controlled. I know a white dude, a dick shocker. Who knew? Um, he was very controlling of the best investigation. And he actually even went as far as to hide some of the ransom notes. Lindbergh was a firm believer in the eugenics movement. Do you know what that is? No. Enlighten me. <laughs> um, the eugenics movement believed and there, and there's a lot of, famous people who are actually associated with this. Uh, Joe Kennedy, JFK's dad, was actually another subscriber to the eugenics movement. 
which we will definitely be discussing that at some point. Anyway, he was a firm believer in the eugenics movement, in which is the belief that only the smartest and strongest people should be allowed to breed, otherwise known as selective breeding. And those who were less than should be sterilized. So forced sterilization. All right. Yes. And he was very outspoken about this. And in later years, he became associated with the Nazi party. He even moved to Germany and would father like seven children outside of his marriage. You know, on top of having, you know, more children with Anne, he would father illegitimate children. And this was actually proven to be true through DNA testing. He was just an asshole. He was a supporter of the Nazi party. He was involved in the eugenics movement. So America's sweetheart, not really America's sweetheart. No, sounds like Germany's sweetheart. Um, but he but he did support the Nazis party's beliefs of, you know, a superior race and what have you. The reason people think that he would want to get rid of baby Charlie is because medical records indicate that his soft spot had never fully closed and he struggled to stand. And this resulted in physical limitations. And medical records also support that he was diagnosed with a mild form of rickets, which is caused by a vitamin D deficiency. So people say, okay, well, why would he kill his child? Well, maybe that wasn't the plan. So because of all of that, people think that Lindbergh was involved, but they don't believe it was really his intent to kill his son, but rather just squirrel him away off to an institution, which was not unheard of at the time. That's what no. the Kennedy, what Joe Kennedy did with Rosemary Kennedy. He sent her off to live with nuns for the rest of her life because she had mental delays. Okay. And so people think that, that he really was just trying to secret him away um, without Anne knowing because he knew Anne would be opposed to it. Right. And they, so there's a theory. So one of two things happened. The kidnapping was botched when the kidnappers snuck into his room and they were exiting. They dropped baby Charlie. Mm-hmm. So that also goes back to the broken ladder. So if the ladder broke upon climbing, upon climbing down, they could have lost their grip of the baby and he could have hit his head on the way down or he could have even hit the ground and died upon impact. Right. Or there's another theory that the kidnappers took over, kind of formulated their own plan and decided, you know, this is what we're going to do to hell with what Lindbergh says. This is what we're going to do. However, because Lindbergh was so notoriously controlling, people think that this debunks the theory that he involved outsiders Um, They say that there's no way that he would have allowed outsiders to his plan because it was not only too much of a risk, but he had to have control of the whole situation. And so they feel like that just kind of puts the burden of blame and guilt upon him solely Mm -hmm. and that he staged everything else and bought police off. But unfortunately, we will never really know. And if that's the case, you know, an innocent man was put to death for something he didn't do, which not unheard of. That still happens in 2020. But unfortunately, we really we don't know. And there's a lot of people who are just happy to accept Topsman as the culprit in the case and close the book and you're done. Mm-hmm. It's just really sad because the baby didn't have to die. No. And, you know, it was really, and, you know, another, another reason the case was so big is because nothing like this had ever happened before to, you know, it would have been the equivalent of like Vanderbilt or a Rockefeller or somebody like that being kidnapped or even, you know, to move a little bit further into the 20th century, you know, like when Frank Sinatra's son was kidnapped, Mm -hmm. it was just, it was shocking because it's something that you didn't think would happen to people like that. And because nothing like that had been in the news before, it was kind of the first of its kind. Like if it, if there was a 24 hour news cycle in 1933, 
it would have been on a 24 new hour news cycle. Like it would have been the equivalent of the JonBenet case, like in all the coverage. And that I, and if you have to compare it to something, it is kind of the equivalent of the JonBenet case because of the, the coverage that it got and how invested people were in it. They wanted to see baby Charlie come home. And then when he was found, unfortunately dead, they wanted to see this person brought to justice or people brought to justice. And because they felt like they knew Lindbergh, they felt like he was one of, he was their person. Right. And so they wanted to, they wanted to see lucky Lindy have more luck and get his baby back. And unfortunately it didn't happen that way. And it's just interesting. All the theories that have persisted and the, the Lindbergh being involved is one that I find the most interesting Mm-hmm. particularly a lot of people don't realize I mean it's known but it's not something when you learn about Lindbergh that he was a piece of garbage who believed in sterilizing the less than people so yeah it's just a, it's just very sad and very terrible and like I said earlier I didn't even realize that they had found the baby I always just thought that the baby was never recovered right I definitely think Lindbergh being involved makes the most sense because of his belief in eugenics and also with the baby being sick quite often and yeah with nobody knew he was staying there that night yeah and that's the thing so much of the evidence points to either these were really sophisticated people who knew what they were doing or it was an inside job. But if you read the ransom notes, these were not, I mean, the ransom notes were not written, written, wrote, written, wrote, written. I obviously don't know English either. They were not written by very intelligent people, which obviously right. I'm not very intelligent either if I can't figure out which word it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I could, I mean, I could believe Lindbergh did it. I mean, mm-hmm. Somebody with that kind of power, that kind of wealth in the 30s, a time where it was easy to get away with something like that. Right. It's not out of the realm of possibility. But with that said, this is just conjecture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we like our opinion is not gospel. No. It is just our opinion. Um, and the, and the, you know, the 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 John, the 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 Noel theory, the John Noel theory is very interesting as well. It is. Um, the fact that he had the same abnormality on his thumb that Cemetery John had and the fact that his the police sketch matches his photo, you know, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a very likely thing. But unfortunately, this is one of those cases that we'll never know the whole truth. Right. And it's just very unfortunate because baby Charlie deserved to have justice and even if it was his dad, but you know, again, somebody like Lindbergh, he's never going to get convicted of anything. No. So that's just what makes it even sadder. Right. All right. That's the Lindbergh kidnapping. Yes. Yes, it is. So any thoughts on what the next episode will entail? I'm thinking since we're getting close to Halloween, maybe some ghosty stuff. That sounds fantastic. Follow us on Instagram at horrendous.podcast. Yeah. Um, Facebook page will be going up soon. Probably be under the same thing. So it's yep, easy probably to find. Be horrendous podcast. We hope you learned something that you didn't know before. Yes. Or at least enjoyed. Or at least enjoyed, and thank you for sticking with us. You know, this is episode one of hopefully many more to come. Yes. Um, and yeah, we have lots of exciting stuff, lots of interesting stories planned. Mm-hmm. And again, we want to do a nice mixture of paranormal, true crime, and you know, weird history. So if that's your wheelhouse then stick with us and hopefully we'll just get better with each episode and we appreciate you tuning in and listening to us Callie do you have anything to add to that um I do not uh we have a lot of things planned 
hopefully everything goes according to plan because you know, it is 2020. (laughs) It is the shit show of a year. Kelly wants to be able to quit her job and knit all day. So please people listen to the podcast. That would be helpful. (laughs) And as soon as I have an Etsy site, shite, shite, that's Kelly shite on Etsy. Yep. I'll be sure to share that. It's not shite. She actually makes very beautiful scarves. They, they they are wonderful. Thank you. I have one that she generously made for me for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Or was it my birthday? She made it for me and it is very warm and it was very thoughtful and it is beautiful. So when her Thank Etsy you. shop is up, we'll give you the link and you guys will have to go because you will not be disappointed. I hope not at least. She's working on a Slytherin one right now. So if you love Harry Potter, you have to check it out. Mm -hmm, For sure. So, all right. So until next time. This has been horrendous. Yes. Thanks for listening.